Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly and me. I'm Howard Parker. And welcome to part two of a three-part interview, which was originally recorded in 2012 by Katie Daly and our birthday boy, Ben Eldridge, who celebrates a birthday on August the 15th. In this second segment, we get into the great accident, the formation of the seldom seen, including meeting John Duffy, the formation of the band with uh, Ben, Mike Aldridge, Dave Aldridge, John Duffy, Tom Gray, and John Starling, playing the Rabbit's Foot and the Red Fox Inn, the Redskins and playing at the White House, early recordings, the passing of John Duffy, playing with son Chris Eldridge, and live at the cellar door. Here's part two of a three-part interview between Katie Daly and Ben Eldridge. I want to tell you how, how, how the scene got started. It was a big accident. It was just a great big accident. All right, so you and Mike had stopped playing with Cliff, but you would still get together and jam? Or? Well, th- this, was, this, was, this would have been in August of 1971 when, when we, we quit. We stopped playing with Cliff. That was also when John Starling came back to town. He had been in uh, Vietnam in the Army, and he'd, he'd been over there for a couple of years, and he came back to do a residency at Walter Reed about that time. August, September of 71, moved in on the same block that I lived on. He found a house right up the street. And uh, we were just going to keep on doing our little Monday night gig or whatever, you know. I, I, didn't, I didn't really care about going out and playing again. Well, in October of that, that year, uh, and Starling, was, he, was living, he was living up the street, and we were getting together playing music. Um, uh, maybe I ought to preface this by saying the previous Christmas, we were all, Starling was in town, and we, we all went down to Lynn Holesclaw's Christmas party. And Duffy was there, and all the country gentlemen and all. But and Star- Lynn Holesclaw was an Arlington County police he, at officer. At the time, he was, a, he was a, um, I think he was a lieutenant, um, or maybe a captain, in the Arlington County Police. And uh, highly active in bluegrass circles and... Uh, a bass and player? A bass player, and later became um, uh, the country gentleman's manager, I believe, after he retired from the police force. But he had a Christmas party every year, and we'd get invited to it. Um, and anyway, uh, Starling and John got to sing a couple of songs at this, at this party. And no big deal, you know, it was just part of the, what, what went on that night. And, uh, but... Anyway, coming back to coming back to August again, I remember walking in uh, Arlington Music at lunchtime. I had to go up and get some strings or something, and, it, and I worked not too far from it. Walked in, and John Duffy was at the counter. He he had a that's where his music repair shop was, and he would take over the counter duties too. I walked in. And he said, "Hey, Ben. Hey, I hear we're going to be in a band." I said, "What?" He said, yeah, that's a rumor. He said, uh, it's doctor guy, Starling guy, and you and me and Mike Aldridge and, and, uh, and Len Holesclaw, I think. Uh, I said, what is this? He said, yeah. And uh, I, think he's, I think he mentioned, he said, yeah, Charlie Waller was the one that told me about it. He'd heard that rumor. And, uh, and he said, Somebody, yeah, you know, you all you guys had day jobs. You might as well call yourselves. You you could be seldom seen. Well, he he just mentioned that, you know. And, well, uh, now we now we go to October. A couple of months, a couple of months after that, Cliff wanted to go to the DJ convention. He had a regular job at the Red Red Fox on Wednesday nights. He had he wanted to go to the DJ convention. Um, and it'd be down there one of the middle Wednesday in October. In Nashville. Then it was in Nashville. And so he didn't want to play. He wanted to get out of the job. So he called me up and said, can you put your basement band back together and take my place? So I said, sure, yeah, we'll do that. We can do it, which we did. 
And it, let's see, but I think we had, I think we had, I don't think Gary was playing. I think Tom Gray, we may have called Tom. He came over and played bass with us, but it was, but it was the same crowd, Mike and Dave, Bruce and um, John and myself. And while we were there, this place called a Rabbit's Foot called the Red Fox and said, listen, I hear you guys are doing pretty good playing, having bluegrass here uh, one night a week. We want to try it. Uh, and could I have the name of the band? And he said, well, they're not here right now, but these guys seem, nobody's going home, you know, they're, they sound pretty. Anyway, I said, he said, Walt told him, he said, you want to talk to one of them? So, uh, <laughs> Walt so, Broderick. Walt, Walt Broderick, was who, the owner who, of the Red Fox. who was the owner of the Red Fox, right. said, yeah, I'll let you talk to one of them. So he came and got me, and I got on the phone with this fellow, and he told me what he wanted. And he said, can you be here the, the first Monday in November? And without even checking in with any of the rest of the guys, I said, yeah, we'll do it. And it was like, it was like two, maybe two or three weeks away, something like that. before the. Now, uh, if I might be so indelicate, what kind of money did you negotiate on the phone? Oh, I think uh, I did, we didn't. We didn't. Oh. I don't think negotiate. I was, you know, that's money. I, that's, that's, who cares? I'd do it for nothing, you know, <laughs> back in those days. Um, Anyway, we, uh, uh, and I came back and told the guy, they said, oh, yeah, well, that, that's all right. We'll do that. And and I think I might have mentioned that uh, John, you know, John, what that thing had, had happened uh, earlier that summer or a couple of months before. I said, you think we ought to give him a call? Uh, so Star said, no, I'll call him. I'll call him. See if, he'd, see if he'd be interested in doing it. I'll never forget this. It, we had a wall phone in my kitchen, and that was a phone that he he called John, and I was expecting to hear, oh, that's okay, well, we just thought we'd check in with you. But then I, I hear him, he told John what, what was going on. He said, yeah, oh, uh, next Monday night? Yeah, we can get, we, I think we can do, we can get together next Monday night. And I'm going, John John Dovey's going to come, wants to come practice with us. And he's going to do this, and it turns out that he said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll try it." So uh, that's what we did. We got together a couple of times before we went down to the Rabbit's Foot, and uh, and I mean the rest is 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 history. And we were horrible. I mean we we were terrible. Um, but uh, the first song we ever played, I, I know I can tell you what it was was Pick Away. You got a copy pick away? That'd yeah, be, that'd be a good segue. <laughs> yeah. It's the first thing we ever that's the first song we ever played. Well, why were you bad? Why why didn't you sound good together? Uh I think a lot of it was inex inexperience. Uh Starling at that point took he would tune his guitar for about three minutes between songs. Uh, if he didn't have the right words, and he had words up with him, you know, it was, it was a lot of that. But you know, and and then, um, well, we, at that time the band was was uh, Mike and Dave. Dave was one of the original members. He didn't last. Dave Aldridge. Dave Aldridge, yeah. Mike and Dave, Tom Gray, John Starlin, John Duffy, and myself. Um, we just hadn't played enough together. Uh, and uh, you know it, it's John. John was different. You know his his voice was so loud, um, and and everybody else you know kind of had that we were used to sort of had regular uh, volume. And John was used to just Duffy was used to just uh, letting it out. Um, but and, were you a little? in awe of him because oh, of, of course. his being in the gentleman and mm. and all that oh of course oh yeah we we all were um and actually i had i had maybe less so than i would have been earlier because i'd i'd gotten to know him uh, there was about a six months period when i taught banjo down at uh arlington music and i kind of got to know him because uh, his his little shop was right across the hall from where the little studios were that I was teaching, and when I didn't have a student, I'd just go hanging out with him. And he come to find out, he's just a pussy cat, just a great guy. And I, you know that I do, and, yeah. Um, so, but I I never thought he'd be interested in playing any music with us. 
Because uh, he had uh, stopped playing with the country gentleman. He didn't want to travel so much. That's right. And so he wasn't doing any music. And I understand, or at least what the stories I've heard, is that he missed the music and Nancy was encouraging him to uh, get back and play something with somebody. I, I didn't know. I didn't know that Nancy was, uh, you know, was instrumental in that. But that's. I, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Um, anyway, he he kind of jumped in, you know, feet first, and uh, uh, and we once we once we started playing, you know, having played with him for a little bit, it was it got used to it, and. Uh, like I say, the the rest is history, it's, and it was a heck of a ride. Well, you had a couple practice sessions. Uh, there's that famous story, and my listeners have heard it a lot, but tell the story of that fateful night at the Rabbit's Foot. It was Monday Night Football. Oh, Monday Night Football. Same. I think it might have been the second or third night we played at the Rabbit's Foot. Um, and I believe the Redskins, I believe they were playing the Chiefs that night. It was when the Redskins had a, they could play football back in those days. Um, anyway, we got down there and there was a TV TV set beside the stage, and there was another one on the on the bar counter. And um, so we thought, okay, well that's all right. We'll just turn the sound off of the, you know, the the, uh, the TV by the stage, and it won't bother us, and people can keep an eye on the game and all that sort of stuff. Well, unbeknownst to us, the bartender did not do that. He kept his he kept the sound on the TVs, but we couldn't hear it. But up where we were, didn't bother us. And uh, and I think the bartender down there that night had been tipping a little bit too. At least that's what they that's what they told me. Um, uh, anyway. Um, Richard Dress, who is one of the nicest, sweetest guys, you know, just real quiet and just went up to him a couple of times and asked him, asked the bartender if he'd mind turning it down because he couldn't hear the band. Well, I guess after the second or third time, the bartender had had it. And I'll never forget this. We were, we were all, this is right at the end of the set. We were all, uh, as Lester used to say, we were all ganged around the microphone singing, Get in line, brother. We all sang on it, and we were just all standing. And I'm looking out there and kicked it off and looked out there, and then I'm, we're singing it. I see, I also see this guy, this goon, one of, the, one of the bouncers there, had Richard by the scruff of his neck, by the shirt, ushering him out the door. What the heck is going on here? Um, so we got done. That was our last song, and I went outside. And I was out in the street. Richard had gone. He was he was long gone. But I but some another guy came out. And we were just out there chatting, and I'd been out there about five six minutes or so. And all of a sudden, here comes the door wide open. Here comes Tom with his bass over his shoulder, Starling. Everybody's walking out with their instruments. Said, "Blank this place. We ain't we ain't playing here anymore. This is you know there was put up as well this kind of crap." So, all right, I, so John and I, I got my, packed up, and he and I rode up to the Red Fox, which was near where we lived, and uh, talked to Walt Broderick, told him what happened, and uh, actually ended up sitting there at the bar drinking beer, and we watched the rest of the game. <laughs> and got it, and he said, well, you know, why don't you guys uh, come in here the first Tuesday and uh, after New Year's, that which would have been the first Tuesday in 1972, and then we'll just we'll see we'll take it from there. So that's what we did. At this point, did you call yourself the Seldom Scene, no. or you had no band we, name? We didn't have a name. We we did not have a name. Uh, we we hadn't even talked about a name. Well, I don't think we discussed it. I thought I thought of some names, most of which were like what sort of X-rated. Oh. I can't. I can't. I, I can't Thank say. Thank you. I need I, to keep working. Yeah, I can't. I can't say. But one night, um, probably after we were, we had been playing oh, six weeks, maybe at the at the Red Fox. I don't think we'd done anything else. We may we may have played uh, at a high school or something. But I, but but I just remember John saying, well. If you didn't like that, we're the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. If you did, we're the Seldom Scene. And uh, I said, okay, that was it. 
and uh, and then that's what we we just started calling ourselves that. But that had originated through Charlie. I mean, Charlie had made that comment about mm-hmm. well, they ought to call themselves a seldom scene. And were you getting uh, full crowds out at the Red Fox at that? Point? Well, yeah, we were. We of course the first couple of, couple of nights we played there. You know, there was spotty. After about three weeks, three, it was it was pretty quick. I'd get there and there'd be a line at the door. And uh, I know I stood in that yeah, line. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bob, we would, we did an interview with Bob Edwards not too long ago, and he said he stood in that line too. Um, but uh, yeah, there would there was a line at the door, and there'd be a big crowd in there, and, and but it was free when it first started off. There was no cover charge. And I remember Walt coming, and we were making. I think the band was making ninety bucks. Wow! A ba- not 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 a man, for the whole band. I understood. It was lunch money, <laughs> you know, like twelve bucks or fifteen dollars or something like for that. For how many sets? For uh, two, probably three. I don't remember. I I really don't remember. But it was probably three sets. Uh, <laughs> but and I remember Walt um, saying that he was going to start charging two bucks at the door. And I'm thinking, man, who in the world is going to pay $2 to come in here? That's crap. <laughs> well, um, but it didn't seem to slow anybody down. And, I think it and, was, our, and we and we we got $120 instead of 90 yeah. for the whole band. We got a $30 raise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was <laughs> and all your beer. And, and oh yeah, all the beer you could drink. Right. And actually, and and food you could eat too. He'd feed us if we wanted. He was a great guy. He was. He was. He was a really good guy. I worked a job where I got off at 11 o'clock at night right over there in McLean and would come across the bridge and catch the last set. And then Walt and I would go up to the Tasty Diner and eat breakfast. Oh, many times we went to, I spent a lot of money in the Tasty Diner. Of course, we used to live near there, so we'd go over there for breakfast a lot, you know, just on the weekends and stuff. Well, uh, I think, as I recall, that cover charge got up to seven or ten dollars. It was. I don't know what it got up to because I got in free, so. <laughs> so know. you didn't check. I don't know. I didn't check. <laughs> well, you certainly put the Red Fox on the map. Well, we 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 did. I guess we played there, and they became a pretty good bluegrass club. They were they were having a lot of really good stuff in there, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of local bands got to play in there too. Well, and Emmy Lou played there. Oh yeah, and um, but lots of bands. But I remember one. Uh, sort of, it seems silly now, but that it was the first time the Lewis family ever played a bar. Oh, yeah. It was a Sunday afternoon, and it was a very special thing that they came in and played, the Red Fox. Do you remember that? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. And I should. I was probably there, but uh, I I don't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. Well, I can remember being there, and Stefan Grappelli would be playing at the Wolf Trap and would come over afterwards and and Yeah, we had had famous people coming there. Uh, um, Of course, Linda. Uh, Linda Ronstadt. Yeah, Ricky. When Ricky was just a kid, he used to come over and play with us. He was working for Pepco. Pepco, right? Or no, maybe it was Vepco. Uh, it was Vepco, right? I think. Virginia Electric yeah. Power. Emmy Lou used to come in there. Um, um, oh, who's the, who's the gal that did Poetry Man? Um, great singer. I think she just passed away not too long ago. Um, anyway, she was she was in there one night. Um, John Summers came in there. He's a guy who wrote "Thank God I'm a Country Boy." Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we got him up play the fiddle one night. Um, so yeah, it was it was a real scene, and and it was a and lot of Paul fun. Paul Kraft, I remember doing "Drop Kick Me Jesus" through the goalpost of life. Yeah, that and uh, he's uh, it's me again, Margaret. That's because <laughs> he got to make all these weird noises. <laughs> yeah. Um, but and then what we would uh, usually have a party either over at my house or at Starling's house afterwards, after the Fox, and they were a lot of fun too. I I don't know how our neighbors put up with us, because we would I mean we would have people there sometimes not leave until five o'clock in the morning. Mm. If we were at my house, I'd usually go to bed and there'd still be stuff going on. Down and there. you were still working. I was still working. And I could do that. I mean, I could kind of, I could get up and go. I can't, you know, it'd kill me to try to do something like that now. Um, 
but you know, I ought to be young again. You're playing the Red Fox, and they're cut, charging a cover charge, and and there's a line outside, and life was pretty good. We were a long life. It was we a good. The music was great, and and let me bring up one other thing before we get into the seriousness. But this is something that has stayed with the seldom scene. You just celebrated 40 years as a band. <laughs> yeah. You know what? The music was great, and it was fun. It was fun to come to a seldom scene show because you never knew what was going to happen. It, Amen. <laughs> or who was going to show up. But it never... I don't want to make it sound like the music wasn't serious because the music was great. But it, you all didn't take it very seriously. Well, or we, it didn't appear. We the stage we, presence was very lighthearted. We didn't. We didn't appear to, but we we did take the music very seriously. But one of the things that that John sort of taught us was, you know, it's how you present yourself and how you and look like you're having, you know, make it look like you're having fun up there. And don't worry. And if you mess and if you mess up, if you, which we all do, we all make mistakes. And if it's a really bad one. <laughs> Just make them do something crazy and make them think it's the coolest mistake they ever heard in their life, and and that's you know it took us it took us a little while to sort of catch on to that, but I think that's and I think that's still our attitude. You know, we don't we really don't take ourselves seriously. If somebody screws up, you know, it will make a joke out of it mm -hmm. and move on. You know, Duffy's way of dealing with it was uh, he would fling his mandolin behind his back well, and glare at the audience. Well, he could he. <laughs> John John's mandolin plan was he was a brilliant mandolin player, but he also could could play some pretty questionable stuff I think uh, because he didn't he, he mandolin he said he used to have a have, he played the mandolin because he didn't want to stand up there and look dumb with nothing in his hands he just wanted to keep his hands busy but he, he was, was a, a great he was a, he was a singer that's that's the thing that he really. Love doing, but I, he was a he was a heck of a mandolin player too, and he had his own style, very recognizable. But and and like I say, he would he could act. He would come off with some of the most brilliant stuff, and he'd turn around to me and go, oh, "I hope I can remember that the next time we do it." Uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or, or he would play something really kind of not not very good, real rough sounding. But the way he'd get out of that, as you say, he would flip that mandolin behind him and you know, uh, wiggle his eyebrows and stare at the audience. And and it used to really get to Mike because Mike would play these, would play these perfect breaks, beautiful breaks, and get maybe one or two claps, you know. <laughs> well, John was audacious, audacious. Oh, he was. He was wonderful. He uh, was. He was wonderful. Well, let's talk about from... Uh, you know, the long line at the Red Fox to when did you go in and record? When was the first talk of let's make an album? Oh, it was early. It was early, early. on. Yeah, the first, uh, like we started at the Red Fox in January of 1972. And I think we went into the studio in March of 72. It was, um, it was pretty quick. I mean, it was like we'd been playing maybe six or eight weeks, something like that, uh, at the at the Red Fox, and we went in and on two Sunday consecutive Sunday afternoons and did Act One, and it came out. Uh, it came out, uh, I think, end of May, early part of June. Actually, it came out the weekend of Watergate. The week the weekend that they had the thing at Watergate was when Act One came out. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it was pretty quick, and then we went back in the studio. I think that fall and did did Act Two. Well, let's talk about Act One. How did you scare up the material that quickly, or was it just the stuff you were doing on stage? Well, no, we'd gotten some stuff uh, from Paul Kraft. We had some, and when Paul was hanging out with us a lot too. He was he was spending a lot of time up our way. Um, uh, I think Raised by the Railroad Road Line and One of a Woman and oh gosh. Uh, uh, and then John had heard, John Starling had gotten a, a record of uh, Sweet Baby James, but it wasn't James Taylor. Um, oh, hey, I, I can't remember. It was one of the really good folk singers uh, did it. 
he liked it and he taught it to us. Uh, and, uh, you know, just, we, we were just picking songs that we liked. I, I played a instrumental called Joshua, just like Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho, you know. I don't, I don't think there was any deep philosophy going into what, we, what it was. We were, we were just playing things that we thought we could play and that we liked. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of always what we've, we've done. Uh, John wanted to do um, uh, 500 Miles. He'd done that with a gentleman, but he, he thought maybe we could do it again. Uh, I'd like to do it again. And um, uh, what else? Uh, did we do? No, we didn't do I Fowler Carpenter on that record. But uh, anyway, they were, you know, they, they were just, there was just stuff that we, we thought we could do and, and it was, might be a little different from... Were you prepared for the reaction? No. No, but we, but I can tell you this, that, that we were all, th- when we got the stuff home and listened back to it, and I tell we, we did this, we did it in two sessions, on two, I think it was two consecutive Sunday afternoons. Um, we, I, I mean, I would, uh, at the time I was going, I was, I'd get home from work after working during, the, when we had the tapes, I'd, I'd run up to Starling's house and, uh, yeah, man, let's play that stuff again. Cause he had these big voice of the theater speakers in his house too. Uh, and it was just so, you know, we were, we blew ourselves away. <laughs> and, um, uh, it was it was really cool. It was a lot of fun. I, I think one of the things um, that I'm most proud of of what we've done over the years with the scene is is we've gotten. I think the music that we played has been ex- initially ex- more accessible to bigger audiences. In other words, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if a lot of people heard. Uh, Footprints in the snow, or for the first time, or some you know mountain songs, things that they, you know, they city folks don't really relate to some of those things, but they heard us playing things like Sweet Baby James and uh, other you know other sort of more contemporary songs, but done in a you know sort of I think it's kind of a tasteful way. and you know that got them interested in this kind of this kind of music, and then they can go you know pr- proceed from there, go to the go to what I call the really good stuff, you know Lester and Earl and Roe and Mac Wiseman and Ralph. Brother, Ralph, Jim and Jesse, you know Jimmy Martin. Uh, uh, well, I can tell you that when I would want to introduce novices to bluegrass, I would bring them to see the seldom scene. You were what I called the gateway drug. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good way. Of, that's a good way of putting it. I could introduce you, well, and you were palatable to everyone. Well, that's that's. Uh, I wish I'd thought of that because I'm going to remember that. That's. Uh, and, but, then and I'm proud would, of that. And then they would say, "What else is bluegrass?" Yeah. And then you could lead them back to take them to the first generation. Right. Right. But uh, it, it doesn't matter. I think I, I'll. I'm not going out on any limb. I do think the seldom seen is one of the most important bluegrass bands that ever existed in that you put certainly put washington on the map i think you were one of the first bands to stop wearing uniforms oh <laughs> you know people well, used to i remember when you stopped wearing uniforms well, and it, some people's hair were catching on fire you all uh you were breaking the mold you were breaking whatever the rules were and oh my God, it was good music and it was fun. Well, we that was a that was a tough that that dressing business was uh, because people don't believe me when because, I tell them now. Well, well, and the reason that happened was is we, you know, Starling and I, were preppies. <laughs> you know, I went to UVA, so okay, he went he would went to medical school at UVA, preppies. You know, used to wear. Oxford cloth shirts and you know, sweaters and Weegians and all that stuff. And of course, John was into bowling shirts and stuff like that. And we did dress alike for a little while, but 
it, this, it, it just, this, I didn't like what we were wearing. Starling didn't like it. And finally, we just said, to hell with it. You know, we'll just wear what we want to wear. And of course, we were starting to hang out a little bit with the New Grass Revival guys, you know, and they looked like he just got off a tractor most of the time. Um, they did not, you know, they, they were dressed in jeans and T-shirts and stuff like that most of the time. And so we this didn't... all sounds very silly to an audience in 2012, but back in the early 70s, uh, this was pretty serious stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't, I didn't know, uh, I didn't know what was what how audiences were yet were reacting to the way we were dressed because I didn't care. <laughs> I really didn't. Um, we didn't. That's, I think that's one of the things we, we you know we did what we did. And we didn't care. Somebody didn't like it, didn't matter. You know, if they did, that's great. Um, uh, but we just wanted to have fun and make good music. Yeah. Well, so the reaction to Act One was so overwhelmingly positive. You Did that affect how quickly you went back in to do Act Two? Probably. Okay. Probably, yeah. Um, yeah, because I, cause, yeah, I think we, excuse me, I think we went into studio that fall, you know, Act One had only been out a couple of months, um, and uh, yeah, we were we were we were putting them out pretty fast and furious there for the first few years. And uh, Starling had uh, has always been a song catcher. Yep. He was his his listening taste. I don't think knew any bounds. Did you? No, no. And and back then he was he was penning some a few songs. He wrote, you know, he's written about five or six songs in his whole in his life, mm -hmm. and they're all gems. Every last one of them. Uh, CNO Canal. Uh, gardens and memories. Gardens and gardens and memories. Uh, answer your call. Uh, I mean, uh, just great stuff. I've been I've been trying to get him to write some more, and he said the the muse won't show up. <laughs> 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 little pastime that started out loving the harmonica sound from your crib yeah has taken you to some interesting places oh and gosh. uh <coughs> recording movies and and things like that but uh one that surprised me was that of course i always think of the time that the seldom scene played the halftime at the redskins game and you weren't there i wasn't there no, I had a I had a business meeting I had to go to out in California, and they were playing the the 49ers that day, and I I got Bobby Bryant to play for me. I couldn't couldn't get to the game, but I heard them on the radio because I flo I'd flown out to San Francisco that day, and we were we were riding in the car from the airport to the I guess to the hotel. Uh, and the game was on. I was listening to the game, and halftime came on, and I could, they didn't have it. They didn't have it mic'd up on the field, but I could hear it playing in the background behind the guys doing the uh, doing the talking about the game, and that was kind of cool. That's so, very cool. Yeah, yeah. I was, and all the way, I was all the way out in San Francisco when that was it was happening. But uh, let's talk about the events that you did show up for, and those were a couple gigs at the White House. Yeah, yeah, we've we've been to the White House. Well, we we've been we went twice to uh, W. Uh, let's see, twice or maybe was it three times? Twice, I guess. Um, and then we went uh, for Jimmy Carter um, twice. And the uh, the second time we went, uh, John couldn't make it. Duffy. Duffy. Well, he. That was back when he was playing a lot of softball. He was, and he took his softball really seriously. So I'd, I'd gotten a call from uh, Gretchen Poston, who was Ms. Carter's social secretary, asking us if we could come play for this. It was a picnic they were having for the all the White House staffers, I think, um, out on the South Lawn. And um, so I, I called everybody and asked them if they could do it. And everybody, of course, said, yeah, except John. And John said, paying us anything I said no John and not it's you know it's the White House it's an it's an honor to be there I was oh, no, no, I got a ball game uh, God I got a ball game that night um, tell you what I'll just uh, I'll try to get there after the game <laughs> so 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 they had 
So what happened was they had they had about four different bands sort of stationed at different on different platforms around the picnic area, and so uh, we would play a song, and then a you know mariachi band would play a song, and a rock and roll band would play a song. So it, so we just did instrumentals, and then and then finally, about the time we were done, Duffy showed up. Showed up in time to, to have all the uh, same amount of eats and drinks that the rest of us had, <laughs> but but he didn't have to pick a lick. <laughs> and was he in his softball outfit? I, well, I don't remember, but probably not. He was. He probably put on his whatever whatever he might have been wearing in those days. Right. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> I do. We we uh, we never let him forget that one though. He is. Yeah, it was, you sounded really great at the White House, there, John. <laughs> but the, what were some of the really places well, that your mom probably would have been surprised that that banjo took you? Oh well, I think, and you were what I think the absolute highlight that I can when I think of highlights, you were there, you were part of it. Was at the Kennedy Center. Yeah. I'm getting a chill bump just thinking about that right now. That was. Um, I mean that was just an amazing, amazing night. Um, it 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 took took my feet about three days to hit the ground after that. Um, I thought the music was great. The whole vibe there was was really good, um, and uh, it was just and and playing at the Kennedy Center to a sellout crowd, a friendly. Friendly sellout crowd. We got a great album out of it. Got nominated for a Grammy. Didn't win, but that's okay. We're three-time losers in that department. <laughs> I don't think I never attached that word to you guys. <laughs> but but yeah, that was that was uh, an amazing night, as I'm sure you can testify to. Yes, it was. Yeah, it yeah. was. And how about even uh, on your uh, anniversary where you got a letter from Ronald Reagan congratulating you? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, we've, oh, gosh, I mean, we've had a lot of nice things happen. Um, you know, we're all Kentucky colonels now. <laughs> uh, but, uh, wow, I don't know. I, I, think, I think playing at the White House... The last time we played at the White House, we had a real concert. We played for, we did a, a, like an, an hour, or maybe, or maybe it was 40, 40 minutes or 45 minutes. But looking down there and seeing Senator Luger and the president tapping his foot, and uh, he, he uh, and I, I pulled a real boner, real, <laughs> went horrible. But the first, the first time we played for the Bushes, we actually didn't get to play because rain came up just as we were taking the stage and it was a bad thunderstorm. But we did get our pictures taken with them. So they, they had lined us up out in the uh, Rose Garden, I guess it was. And, and they told us, they said, okay, you guys stand here and get lined up and make a gap between you in the middle and they'll come and get in the middle and take a picture with you. So they did and they came out and they were very gracious and nice, shook our hands and everything. and then they stood there and Mrs. Bush stood right next to me and the guy was out there taking his pictures. He said, okay, everybody smile. And I said, and I just, I straightened up like that. And I said, okay, sucker man. And she looks at me and she says, are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, oh God, <laughs> me and my big mouth. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was really cute. She was. They were. They were just nice people. <laughs> nice people. Are you talking to me? And then you got invited back. How about yeah, that? Yeah, we did. We did. That's right. And and that's when we. That's when we actually got to play for them. And that was. And that was neat. There were a lot of. Uh, it was just before the uh, last Olympics. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were a lot of famous athletes there, and a lot of senators and congressmen and familiar faces. And everybody seemed to like what we were doing. So. So that was cool. Uh, I guess one thing you never thought you would do as a band was tour Japan because of Duffy's fear of flying, but you got there. We got there. We finally got John on a plane back in the end of 1979 to go down to, uh, to Nashville to play at a big show that they were having at the new uh, Grand Ole Opry, what do they call it? Not the Rhyme. Opryland. Opryland Theater. And... Uh, he somehow agreed to go, 
and uh, it was it was it was a little dicey because everybody on the all the people all the stewardesses and everything flight attendants excuse me all the flight attendants knew about John they, they the word had gotten that he was afraid of flying and you know and they were keeping an eye on him well he loved it he didn't get sick to, you know he was afraid he was going to get uh, car sick or air sick because he'd been up I think with his cousin or his brother when he was young and the guy was doing all this stuff and it, he and he didn't he didn't like for anybody else to drive in a car he like I mean he would uh, he would tend to get car sick if he wasn't driving well he made it fine made it up and back fine and then from there on we couldn't keep him off of airplanes wow um, so yeah that but that was good but yeah we went to Japan twice and uh, had a great time over there we had a lot of fun um, we had a Kira Kira Otsuka went with us uh, both times, and uh, that was a big help because, of course, he knew the language and he could order dinner for us, and uh, you know when he had to. The last night, the first time we were there, the last night we were there, they they gave us uh, they 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 rented a small little restaurant that you when you went in you had to take off your shoes didn't have tables it had you know you sort of almost sat on the floor and they you know they had this thing and there was no silver there there was no silverware they only had chopsticks and real traditional Japanese it's a wonderful place but John and Nancy Duffy uh, I don't think had ever been to a Japanese restaurant or eaten Japanese food or had ever had chopsticks in their hand and we got the biggest kick I, I, I most of the rest of us knew how to use them Got the biggest kick out of watching them, <laughs> watching them trying to eat with a, a chopstick in each hand and trying to grab something. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was crazy. And we, oh, you know, John used to, used to keep us entertained even when he didn't know he was entertaining us. I remember one time we had a, <clears throat> we were flying to Alaska. We flew from Seattle to Alaska. And he had a, we were on a DC-10, and he had an he had a inside aisle seat. You know, they had double aisles. He had in, and there was a kid in the, in the seat behind him, uh, sitting in his. Well, he kept jumping up in his mom's lap, and he was bumping the seat. And you see John sitting here like this with his head in his hands, and bam! And he, you know, he'd knock him forward a little bit when the kid would do. Finally. We, and Lou was one of Lou was sitting next to me. He said, "Look, we got the John Duffy show going over here," and sure enough, I could see, and the kid did something, and John went, "Bam!" was with a with backwards, you know, in his seat, and knocked the kid back in his mom's lap. <laughs> so she, I think, she got the message. <laughs> but it was really, it was really funny. Oh man! Well, since uh, we're talking about John Duffy. Um, we all still miss him so oh and yeah what how about though how difficult was the transition uh after losing john oh man i'll tell you the the first time the first few times we played were just horrible i mean just they were just gut-wrenching um the first time was new year's eve he died the 20 i'm sorry he died uh december the 10th and our next gig was New Year's Eve, and we decided to go ahead and do it because we could get Dan Tomiski to do it. But it was—I uh, mean, it was just—it was just rough. It was, I mean, we played all right. I think the music was 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 all right because you know Dan just jumped right in there. But um, it was scary. And then the the next gig we had was uh, out at Wintergrass. And, um, and we used Dan again at that one because he was out there. And uh, just, you know, it's it, not having him up on stage. You know, he was the he was the guy that did all the talking and you know, all the nonsense. He and Dudley had gotten to have a pretty good rapport. But you know, I just I never I hardly ever talked. I used to feed him some of his lines sometimes, kind of under my breath, and occasionally they they would come out when I. I, I'd feed him something inappropriate, and it didn't matter. It would just get <laughs> there was no edit. Was just, no edit. No edit. No edit. Um, but so I had to start picking up a little bit with that. So that was kind of scary for me to do, 
And I, I became a wise guy for a while, and I, I've calmed back down again. Dudley does most of it, of it now, but I, I do a little bit. Um, but uh, it was it was it was really rough, and I wasn't sure that I, I, at the time we we had a meeting. I guess a couple of weeks after John died, it was right around Christmas, of trying to decide what to do with the band, whether to keep it going, and if we kept it going, should we call it still call it the Seldom Scene, or should we call it the Scene, or should we just give it a different name or what? And and Ronnie Ronnie played a a tape of an interview. We were over at Ronnie's house. Ronnie Simpkins, our bass player. Uh, and he played a tape of an interview that John had done probably 10, 15 years ago, I think with Jerry Gray, where he talked about how important it was to establish your name uh, in, in this business. And, uh, and it sort of, you know, sealed, well, if we do this, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll just keep calling ourselves a seldom scene see what happens um, and we you know that first six months or so was uh, we were having to we used Don Rigsby and Dan whenever he could do it and um, we, we there was one gig that we had down in North Carolina that we couldn't get we couldn't get any we couldn't get either one of them and um, so we, we decided to call Lou and he could he was free he could do it and um, it was down. You know who Sherry Boyd is? Yes, I yeah, do. Yeah, it was it. It was at. Uh, it was one of her gigs. One mm -hmm. of her shows. Um, anyway, Lou came and played with us, and it was great. I mean, we were. You know, it was one of these evenings where we. I think the second set was supposed to be like forty-five minutes, and we ended up playing almost two hours. It was so much fun, because he already knew a lot of our stuff and was comfortable with it, and. Uh, and he was on his best behavior that night, um, and not that he ain't always on his best behavior. But um, anyway, we we just decided uh, decided to make see if he wanted to come back, and uh, he did. So he's he's been back ever since. And uh, and we've I guess this is the version the current version of the band is the is the longest running one. Of all the versions, really? Yeah, it's been since uh, nineteen um, uh, since the summer of '97. So, so that's what 15, 15 years. You're the mathematician. It's fifteen years, I wow. think. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, the original band was probably seven years, something like that. Um, and I, I think everybody else was was kind of like that. So it was. Um, but that that was that was a that was a tough time, and I, and I think a lot of people, you know, there are a lot of people that weren't sure that we should be doing it. I've had a lot of people say I couldn't come see you guys early on because I just didn't want to hear Bandit without John. You know, in fact, I I just got that this past weekend down in Asheville, and. I like it when they say, but you know, you guys are just as good as you ever were. But that's uh, what was the feeling at the 40th anniversary is that, yes, we all missed him and we paid tribute to him and then the party continued. Yeah. And that's how it would have been. That's how John would have That's what he would have wanted. Yes. That's what he would have wanted. Right. And that, that was, and that, I think that was part of our, our decision making, uh, you know, it's an element of our, our decision making when we decided to keep the band going. Because, you know, it was that, I think John would want us to do it. We, we, we got so many good songs out there that we can, that we can still do. Um, and people, you know, and, and it's fun. So why don't we, you know, it's still fun. So why don't we, why don't we do and it? And it still sounds great. Yeah. I think so. I think so. And uh, a great bunch of guys. I mean, they're just, they're just a super. Fred, Ronnie, Lou, Dudley, I mean, they're just, all of them are just neat guys. I'd, I'd, I'd hang out with any of them, if, even if they didn't pick a lick, you know? <laughs> <laughs> hang on one second. Okay, um, I want to switch from that. We'll get, I want to get back, I'm skipping around a little bit, but... Um, you know, when uh, Flat and Scruggs broke up, I was mad at Earl Scruggs. 
I'll be real honest. I thought, so how I. could you do that? To me, personally, uh, not that he ever, even today knows I exist, but not too long ago, they were commemor- they were dedicating a plaque, the you know the cradle of bluegrass, putting it there, one of those historic highway signs, putting it yeah, next yeah. to the Ryman, and they had a big ceremony out there, and uh, one one of the things they had was uh, Eddie Stubbs. Earl Scruggs was supposed to get up and talk, and I think that if Eddie had left him to his own design, he would have gotten up and said, well, thank you very much, and sat down. But Eddie interviewed him. Yeah. And he said, um, well, Lester was happy playing the, the hits that we played and played and played. Yeah. And I had a chance to play music with my sons, and there's nothing like it. There's nothing like playing music with your children. And suddenly, I can now as a parent, I went, what? Wow, I never thought about that. And um, I think one of the, the things that happened at the 40th anniversary is watching you and Chris on the stage together. And I took a great picture, not that I'm a good photographer, but I snapped um, a picture. And when I would see the two of you playing together, I actually would get choked up. Really? As, you know, uh, so talk to me about the difference of playing with your child. He's not a child anymore. No, no. But he, it's, it's, been, it's been wonderful. I mean, he is, to watch him blossom uh, as a musician and just as a person, you know, he, he's, he's basically the same person he was. 15 years ago when he was, you know, he's just, he's a great guy. He, uh, he has no, I mean, he knows how good a player he is nowadays, but he has no ego, obnoxious ego aspect to that at all. He still looked at, looks at himself as a work in progress and we love to play music with each other. I mean, we've done it a lot. I mean, I cannot tell you, not, not as much recently, of course, cause he's busy off doing movies and I don't know, he's, Every time I talk to him, I turn green with envy. Oh, Elton, we, we hung out with Elton John the other night. And, uh, oh, what'd you do for New Year's? Oh, uh, Norman and I went over to Steve Martin's. You know, stuff like that. I said, Stop telling me that. Yeah, stuff. but did he go to Linda Ronstadt's? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. Um, but it, it's so much fun playing with him, and he likes he likes to play with us too. He gets a big kick out of it, and we get it. We love to have him. Um, and uh, you know he's he's my I, he's been my best bud since he was a little guy. I mean I, I hope I don't offend my other children by saying that, but um, because I love them too dearly. But you know Chris is he's he, from the time he started talking, he was different because a lot of kids when they're real small they want to talk about what they see on you know. SpongeBob SquarePants, or I don't know what all. Chris and I would just have regular conversations. I mean, talk starting when he was like three years old. We'd just talk about stuff uh, when we were riding in the car, or something like that. And um, and he's just always always been that way. Uh, I didn't think he was going to learn how to play the guitar for a while. How'd that happen? Well, he. Uh, well, John Starling's son, Jay, who lives right around the corner here, uh, or did at the time, uh, and, and he's about a year and a half, maybe two years older than Chris, um, started playing keyboards when he was about nine or ten years old and just got him. I mean, literally within about a month, he was playing Fur Elise from the time he took his first lesson. Mm. I mean, Jay's a magnificent musician now. I mean, he... But anyway, um, so Chris and Jay was also playing some guitar. So Chris decided he wanted to play guitar, but he heard this guy, Eric Johnson, who's a wonderful electric guitar player, and that's who he wanted to play like. Um, so, uh, you know, he listened to a lot of that stuff, and he, was, he worked on it, but he never quite got it, and he never quite would play in time. And, and then, he started, then he started listening to Tony Rice, and he learned a lot of Tony's licks, but he just play licks. You know, we'd say, "Come on, Chris, now I want to, I want to pick, you know, play some rhythm with me." And he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. He just wouldn't go do stuff up and down the neck. Finally, we, 
one day we were up in Western Maryland, just the two of us. We have a, a place up at Deep Creek Lake. And just the two of us were up there. And I think I was probably working on some of my work stuff on the computer. And I got frustrated. I, I, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with my program. And so I said, like, Chris, go get your guitar. Let's pick a little bit. Uh, let's, play, let's play Blackberry Blossom. Okay, so I started playing it. And uh, I guess he started playing. So I was, I was playing, chopping rhythm to him. And it came my turn to play. I started playing, and all of a sudden, his rhythm, he was right in there playing, playing the rhythm with me. And then I did my part, and he came back and did it. And he was, all of a sudden, he started playing music, like with somebody. Whereas before, he'd just been doing licks and stuff. And then from then on, he just started ramping up. Uh, I was I was listening last night to uh, some of the, just because I knew you were coming down here and maybe want to talk about some of that stuff, but the first thing he ever played on, on any of our records, and it was a great, he was only 17 years old, and it's a, it's a song called When the Walls Come Tumbling Down. And he I'd gone up to the studio to do some overdubs, and I, he was, I said, you want to go up with me? He said, yeah. I said, Get, I'll bring your guitar just in case. So we went up and I did a few overdubs and then they put the walls and I was going to do a banjo part on it. And I said, Chris, you want, you want to try, try doing this? I said, oh, okay, Dad. So he went out to his car and got him, uh, Billy hooked him up and we, and he took about four swipes at it, four, four takes. All four of them were different and all four of them were good. But we kept he kept the last one, and he's on the he's on that. That's the first thing. That's the first thing I think he's ever recorded in a studio, and he was cool as a cucumber. He he's cool as a cucumber in the studio. A lot cooler than I am. I get nervous and jittery in the studio. Uh, but he was just you know. But he's just a natural, and um, I I must admit I miss him. I I miss him because I don't get to see him nearly enough of him. But I do talk to him every couple of days on the phone, so we keep. I like the story you tell about. Gettysburg. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay. I, when he was about ten years old. Yeah, he was. I yeah, he was. He was just starting to get into the guitar, and he was really working on it. And um, we've been playing at the uh, Gettysburg Bluegrass Festival. Oh my gosh, since the, since 1979 or 80, we've played almost all of them. And he's gone. He used to go up there with me before he ever started playing a guitar. I mean, he'd like to go up with me. Because I'd give him, you know, I'd give him five bucks or ten bucks or something, and he'd go over to the, you know, to the game room and, and do all that sort of stuff. But uh, anyway, he'd started, I guess when he was about 10 or 11, he'd started playing the guitar, and we got up there, got out of the car, and, um, well, I've been coming up there so long, people know who I am, and they'll always, you know, people will come over and say, hey, how you doing? Did you have a good winter? Blah, 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 and all this sort of stuff. And, and this happened. And... Um, so when they left, Chris turned around to me and he said, Dad, he said, I'm going to keep working on this guitar and I'm going to get good so that when we get to come to this places and get out of the car, people say, see that old guy over there? That's Chris Eldridge's dad. Well, we're there. <laughs> <laughs> and aren't you proud? I am. I am. I could not be more proud, really and truly. Act three, uh, on the Bluegrass Today, there's a Daniel Mullins, Joe Mullins' son, uh, yeah. writes a little column on the essential Bluegrass collection. And he lists Act three as, gotta have that in your collection. And he uh, talks about the selection of the material and stuff. Uh, you were really, really branching out by the time Act three came around. I, I guess... Um... I don't. I'm not sure. I even remember what's on Act Three. I just That's remember. that red album, right? So I know the. I know what the, the cover looks like. He said he was very surprised. Chim Chimchimery. Chim Chimchimery is on there. I think Hail to the Redskins, which I did not want to do, but uh, Dick Freeland uh, insisted that we do that because he thought he'd get a 45 out of it and get it down to the Redskins store, which he did. Yeah. I think. I think it, uh, and it, you know, it got us on the got us at the halftime show, which I missed. Um, but I can't, and I guess Ryder was on there and, uh, Ricky Skaggs played on that. He was in the studio that day. And I remember he was just a, he was just a kid. He was scared to death of John. Really? Yeah. I forget. 
Did we do Sing Me Back Home on that? I think. Yes. I think, I because think. I remember his comment in this column was that uh, Starling really did it so understated. It was different than Merle. Yeah. Uh, really elegant and beautiful and understated. Well, I think I remember I remember being out in the hall with Ricky and Ricky asking me if, if he thought John would mind if, mind if he played tenor uh, part over over something he was doing. You know, he wanted to do some part. I said, no, just go ahead and do it. If he doesn't like it, uh, he'll tell you. But, uh, you know, just, just do it. Don't be scared of it. So he did, he, you know, he did a great job for us. And he played some cool, and we had never rehearsed Ryder with him. I, was, I mean, we, that was just, and I was scared to death when we were doing that because I don't do that much singing. And I had to sing on that. I sing on that one. And I, and play at the same time. Uh, and, uh, and then Ricky played all that cool stuff on the fiddle on that one. I, uh, that was just off the top of his head, just, uh, you know. How about Tom's kickoff? Oh, yeah, yeah, and Tom's kickoff, and Tom's bass playing on it. Um, I You know, everybody did well, but I just remember just having a, having a knot in my stomach, thinking about, oh, God, I'm gonna probably sing flat, and I'm gonna, you know, but uh, I, well, I did, I, <laughs> I I think the last note on the ring out, I was a little bit I was a little bit flat. I don't know, maybe nobody else could hear it. I could I could hear it, and when it got done, I I went, I made a, a little Bronx cheer noise, um, and uh, that that ended up uh, getting on the record. <laughs> and really? yeah and if you look at the original record uh, I don't it's probably not on there now on the CDs or anything it'll say sound effects by Lord Windischmere <laughs> <laughs> if, <you know. laughs> whose idea was that Freelands yeah who, who else <laughs> I didn't ever notice well that. you listen to it listen to the ring out right at the, right at the end of Ryder and, and uh, we're singing that note, and I think I'm just a arse, just a little teeny weeny bit flat, and um, and 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 you can hear that little quick little Bronx cheer, and that's and then that, it's over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, uh, another landmark album for you all was uh, Live at the Cellar Door. Yes. And uh, I think they brought in what John used to call the Anactron truck. When set it outside the No, it truck. wasn't the Anactron truck. Um, hang on, hang on. Okay. Uh, it wasn't. It was, um, um, uh, oh, let's see, uh, what's the studio? Jeez, uh, uh, I'm having a senior moment here. Um, what's, the name, what's the name of the studio that... Uh, that we did all that recording, and we did Act Two in there, and, and a bunch of stuff. We still go there. Um, anyway, it was it was their there was their truck. Uh, it was an eight track. Mm -hmm. They had a. Uh, and it was parked right outside. Parked the right door. outside the cellar door. Two nights we we recorded two nights. Which was a one way street in Georgetown, and. Yep. It may have even been cobblestone in those days. I don't remember, but that was a heck of a place to put that big truck. Yeah, yeah. It, it, but it wasn't. A, it was more like a van. Mm -hmm. The one, the one they used there. Now the big truck came there for the cell, for for the uh, uh, Kennedy Center. I think the big Anactron truck was there for that one. But for, for the cellar door, it was an. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was an eight-track uh, system, and they had a van that they had out there. But we did that. We did that whole thing in two nights. Uh, I think three sets a night. Um, and then we actually, there were a couple of things that we went back and fixed a few things in the studio um, and re-recorded uh, a, a couple, I think there were two songs that we recorded because we did, uh, John Starling had changed his mind about what key we were gonna do Dark Hollow in. <clears throat> and we'd been doing it, doing it in C. Mm. And he wanted to do it in, in B. Well, that that changed my whole approach on the banjo, because I played out of a, a played in C. I played out of open, just open tuning, um, open G tuning. But playing in C, whereas uh, you know when it's B, I have to use a capo on a fourth fret, and it's a whole different deal. But it just didn't. The singing didn't sound as as good either. So we went and re-recorded that one in in the key of C. 
and I think and Mike uh, loved that. I'll bet. Oh yeah. Oh yes, he did. Yeah, you bet. You bet. And then I think um, I think we did Colorado Turnaround uh, again too. Uh, so. Uh, well, it certainly captured that that loose stage appearance. Did you have a set list? Did you how or did probably you just... I you know I don't remember because we we very rarely used to use set lists. We just used John would just usually run the run the show. You know he would take get a sense of what was going on with the audience, and uh, and some of that stuff. I mean, like when my picks came off and. Uh, when we were doing uh, uh, what hit parade of love, they really came off. I mean, they, one of them just came right off my finger. But it was real late. I mean, it was almost two o'clock in the morning. I was dead tired. Mm. But it, it got on, and I, I listened to that yesterday too. And um, I just broke out. I just broke out laughing. It's really funny. It's really because John says I said, "Oh, I lost my pick," and he says. Well, I'll get the damn thing. <laughs> what is it? I don't want you to lose a nickel yeah, or something. Said, oh, I said, oh, I got another fifty cent shot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then and then uh, I finally got my picks. I got that pick back and started playing the break. And I used to do this uh, crazy Courtney Johnson kind of lick, one of those bluesy sounding licks mm -hmm. on there. I can't do it anymore because my thumb won't go there anymore. Uh, but and then he grabbed. I got about halfway through, and he grabbed the neck of my banjo. You hear it going Doo -doo 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 like that. And, um, but yeah, that, a lot of that stuff was, you know, that was totally unplanned. Um, and this girl, that crazy girl, that was in there. Was uh, was I don't know who it was. But it wasn't me. It wasn't. No, it wasn't you. It was not you. Uh, but she was rolling. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> I've had more people ask, are you that screaming girl at the cellar <laughs> no, door? No, we have no idea who that was. But she was sitting right in front of us and uh, pretty well oiled. Pretty well oiled, I'd say, mm -hmm. yeah. And that was Katie Daly talking with Ben Eldridge in part two of our three-part interview. Part three is for all of you banjo geeks out there. You'll want to be tuning into that. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and katydaily.com. As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Mm -hmm.